This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello. We're looking at the short text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, by the founder of the Guluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. In particular, last week, we covered what was meant by the current of the four powerful rivers, and you might remember, if you were tuned in, that we first referred to the four causal rivers, or torrents, as Geshe Sonam Rinchen described them, as the torrent of ignorance, the torrent of views, the torrent of desire, and the torrent of worldly existence. Gaelic Rinpoche, in his commentary, spoke of ignorance, wrong view, desire and attachment, which might be easier to remember. From those causal rivers or torrents come the four resultant, birth, ageing, sickness and death. But not only are sentient beings, including ourselves, caught in these four causal and resultant torrents, Lama Tsongkhapa goes on to say that we are all also tied by the strong bonds of karma, which are so hard to undo. Now, we spoke quite extensively on karma at the beginning of this series of programs, so we're not going into all that again. But I would like to investigate a few writings on karma that will remind us of what we spoke about before and might also increase our understanding. However, before we go any further, let's set our motivation as usual. Do I have to repeat again that our motivation should be bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment, so we can be best possible benefit to all sentient beings. Well, that is the best. But of course, if you can't go that far, at least think that this program will become a cause for your own liberation from all suffering, so that you can help others along the way. Thank you. The first piece of writing is an article that's quite beautiful and comes from the Tricycle magazine website tricycle.com. It goes through some of what we discussed in earlier programs at the beginning of this series, but uses a practical example that is both succinct and touching. The article is by Beth Roth, a teacher of mindfulness-based stress reduction and Vipassana in Connecticut. She writes, The Buddha called the law of karma the light of the world because it illuminates how and why things happen in our lives. The force of karma is a fundamental principle underlying all Buddhist teachings, and our understanding of karma can help decrease our suffering and show us the way to greater happiness and freedom. Once grasped, the law of karma seems an obvious truth. Yet I stumbled over it for years, because seeing the world through this lens felt alien to my upbringing, my conditioning and my experience. But as my understanding of karma and my confidence in its significance continue to grow, I enjoy sharing this teaching with others. Whether in my work as a Dharma teacher or at home with my two children, I endeavor to help others claim this wisdom teaching as their own. Karma, or karma, 
in Pali is a Sanskrit word that literally means action, although technically it refers to volitional action. The word karma is often paired with another Sanskrit word, vipaka. Karma vipaka means action and result, and the law of karma is commonly known as the law of cause and effect. According to the law of karma, it's not possible for actions and experiences to arise out of nowhere. Our actions in any moment are the result of prior actions and experiences. Likewise, it's not possible for actions to disappear without residue or result once the action is over. To think it could be otherwise, the Buddha explained, would be like believing you could toss a stone into a pool of water and not create a single ripple. Thus, our actions in any moment are not only the result of previous actions, but are also creating the conditions for future actions. The Buddha said, if you want to understand the past, look closely at the present. If you want to understand the future, look closely at the present. Beth Roth goes on to say that the results of our actions may arrive either almost immediately with the action or further in the future, even after many lifetimes. Similarly, our present experiences are the results of actions that may have just happened or occurred sometime in the past, maybe the far distant past. One does not have to believe in past or future lives to verify the law of karma, she claims. One needs only to look closely and with an open mind and heart at how our experiences unfold in this lifetime. One of the earliest opportunities I had to explore the law of karma with my children occurred a few years ago, when my son Emilio was nine years old and my daughter Claudia was five. Our dog Luna was our teacher. The younger of our two border collies, Luna was about two years old at the time, very active and full of puppy energy. Mostly white with black patches over both eyes and ears, Luna is a very beautiful and extraordinarily sweet dog. She frequently stops traffic and draws people out of shops and restaurants to admire her. Deeply loved by both children, Luna has always been an important mem member of our family. One fall afternoon, Luna came in from a brief romp in our backyard, and as I began to pet her, I saw streaks of fresh blood on my hand. Since she was not limping or in any apparent discomfort, it took me a moment to figure out where the blood was coming from and what had happened. She was bleeding from a wound on her hind leg, a wound so long and deep that I knew immediately it would need stitches. After I regained my composure and showed Claudia what I had discovered, we brought Luna to the nearby vet hospital. The vet examined Luna and told us she would need to be admitted to have the wound cleaned and sutured. Although Claudia and I were upset, we were also relieved that Luna would be home with us later the same day. We left Luna at the vet hospital and went to pick up Emilio from soccer practice. With great care, so as not to alarm him, I explained what had happened. Through his tears, I reassured him that Luna would be okay and that we would all go together after dinner to bring her home. I decided on pizza dinner at a restaurant just a few blocks from the vet hospital, but when we called the hospital at the appointed time, they told us that due to another animal emergency, Luna was still waiting for a procedure. Disappointed, we returned home. When we next called the hospital, the vet was attending to Luna, and we were told she'd be ready to come home in another hour. Both children showered, brushed their teeth, and changed into their pyjamas, by which time we were given the go-ahead to pick up our dog. We had a joyous reunion with Luna in the waiting room at the vet hospital. 
Once home, we began talking about how Luna could have injured herself in our backyard, as the yard is clean, safe, and fully enclosed by a sturdy fence. Since their normal bedtime had long since passed, I assured them we could try to figure it out in the, the next day. The next morning, when both children were in school, I slowly walked the perimeter of the backyard, looking for breaks in the chain-link fence, sharp ends of branches on the ground, or some clue as to what had happened. Finding nothing along the perimeter, I walked throughout the yard, searching for evidence of how Luna could have injured herself. Again finding nothing, I reluctantly gave up and headed for the house. Along the way, I picked up the children's bright yellow metal Tonka truck and carried it to the front of the yard where their outdoor toys are stored. Glancing at the Tonka truck in my hand, I noticed a huge tuft of Luna's soft white hair caught in a corner of the truck's dumpster. Luna had cut her leg on this toy. Most likely, she'd run into it at top speed while chasing a ball or responding to our call to come inside. Although relieved that the mystery of her injury was solved, I wondered how I would find the right time and the right words to tell my children. I was worried they would blame themselves for Luna's injury. I waited until the weekend when we could talk about this in a relaxed way, at a time when Emilio and Claudia were not exhausted from a full day of activities. We went to the backyard and I described how I'd searched the yard trying to find out how Luna had cut herself. Then I showed them what I'd found, the Tonka truck with a large clump of Luna's hair still stuck in its corner. They both became upset, partly because they could now more vividly imagine what had happened to Luna and partly because, as I'd expected, they felt responsible. Claudia looked wide-eyed and frightened. Emilia was sobbing and repeatedly saying, that Luna's injury was his fault. I sat silently until they were calmer. Then I asked them if they wanted to hear about a very special teaching of the Buddha that might help them better understand how they were feeling. They wanted to know more. I began by introducing the concept of cause and effect, and they readily identified various examples of actions being paired with their respective consequences. In this case... Luna, having cut herself on the Tonka truck, was obviously the result of the toy having been carelessly left in the middle of the yard. In simplified terms, I explained the law of karma. There are three types of actions. There are three parts to every action, and different types of actions have different results. The three types of actions are physical actions, all the things we do with our body, verbal actions, which include the words we say and how we say them, and mental actions, also known as thoughts. Although I didn't say this in my explanation to them, I always think of Thich Nhat Hanh's observation that we are easily confused about what we possess, as illustrated by common expressions such as my car, my house, my husband, my children, or even my body. He reminds us, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. The three parts of every action are the intention that gives rise to the action, the action itself, and the result of the action. Of these three, I have found intention to be the most misunderstood, probably because we often use intention as a synonym for goal. For example, when I call my friend Nancy on the phone, I might say that the intention of the call was to invite her to dinner. But in the context of the law of karma, intention is not the purpose of the action. Rather, intention is the state of mind 
and heart that is present at the time I initiate and carry out an action. Using the above example, there are various possibilities of what my intention was. Loving kindness is one possibility if I enjoy preparing food for Nancy and wish to spend time with her again. Jealousy is another possibility if a mutual friend of ours recently invited Nancy to her house and I'm envious of their relationship. Guilt could be another. If Nancy has invited me to her house many times recently and I feel obligated to reciprocate, it is often impossible to know what the intentions of other people's actions are and without mindfulness we may not even be aware of the intentions of our own actions. The Dalai Lama uses the word motivation instead of intention and Thich Nhat Hanh uses volition. Like intention, both words refer to the state of mind and heart that gives rise to an action. We can choose whichever term makes the meaning most clear and accessible to us. Intention, motivation, volition, or state of mind and heart. The Buddha said that intention is like a seed, and the action that arises from the intention is the fruit that the seed produces. With this metaphor, we are reminded not to underestimate the power of even the smallest seed. Within the acorn is the potential for a huge oak tree. To take this metaphor one step further, we can see that any particular seed can give rise only to its respective plant. If we plant an apple seed, we can only get an apple tree. We cannot grow an orange tree or a mango tree from an apple seed. And no amount of manipulation or complaining or attempting to change the result can produce anything different than an apple tree. As it is with seeds and their respective fruits, so it is with our intentions and the actions that our intentions produce. My children easily understood this metaphor. They each had plenty of experience in school and at home with planting seeds and carefully watching their seeds grow. Bethroth then goes on to explain the difference between positive and negative actions and how the first leads to happiness and the second to suffering, either in this or in coming lives. She also mentions neutral actions that lead to neither happy nor unhappy experiences. She further says that of the three parts of an action, the most difficult to understand is the motivation or intention, as it decides the ethical value of the action. She writes, An action arising from a wholesome state of mind and heart, such as generosity, love, kindness, empathy or compassion, is by definition a better action than one arising from unwholesome or afflictive states of mind and heart, like anger, greed, fear, confusion, jealousy, guilt or shame. And equally important, it is the intention that we can potentially have the most control over. We have some control over the action itself and very little, if any, control over the results of the action. This part of the principle of karma proved very useful to Emilia and Claudia, as they considered that their Tonka truck had caused the wound on Luna's leg. They agreed that most everyone judges themselves and others primarily on the results of actions, and that in this moment they were judging themselves very harshly because leaving the Tonka truck in the yard had resulted in Luna's injury. This is exactly backwards from the Buddhist teachings, which says we should evaluate our own and others' actions on the merit of the intention first, then the action itself, and lastly, on the result. To bring this point home, I asked my children if they remembered playing with a Tonka truck a few days ago. They said they remembered playing with it, and that obviously it had been left in the middle of the yard. 
I asked them, did you decide to leave the Tonka truck in the middle of the yard and not return it to the storage area because you felt dislike for Luna in your heart? Amelia and Claudia looked surprised as they considered my question. Then they replied, of course not. We love Luna and we want to take good care of her and protect her. We just forgot to move the Tonka truck out of the way. As they more fully digested this new understanding, I watched their facial expressions soften and their bodies visibly relax. I added, Can you trust your love for Luna and forgive yourselves? They thought this over and said they could, at least a little. I reminded them of how important self-forgiveness is, always, and how awareness of a pure intention can make self-forgiveness a bit easier, and that everything about the law of karma applies not just to them, but to everyone, adults and kids alike. Understanding the law of karma can help us move beyond guilt or denial and actually learn from our experiences. With this in mind, I asked my children what they thought we could do to ensure that this accident would not happen again. They decided that they needed to be very careful to return their toys to the storage area, and that if we ever found the Tonka truck in the middle of the yard again, it would be banished to the basement for one week. About a month later, the Tonka truck did spend a week in our basement, but it hasn't been in the basement since. Luna has been safe in our yard, and I am once again deeply grateful and inspired by the rich legacy of the Buddha's teachings. Now much of what Beth Roth says here is echoed by the teachings of Ajahn Sujito in his book Karma and the End of Karma. He points out that karma does not mean fate or destiny, as in, oh, it was my karma, as though it had had to happen and nothing could be done about it. The Brahmins of Buddha's time evidently used this kind of understanding to persuade the lower castes that being in that situation was their karma and they just had to live through it. And it can also be used to condone negative actions, as in, it's my karma to be a thief. If karma meant this, it would rob us of our responsibility, writes Ajahn Sujito. Furthermore, there would be no way in which we could guide ourselves out of our circumstances or past history, which is what awakening is all about. However, karma, the way the Buddha taught it, means skillful or unskillful action, something we do now. It's the active aspect of a cause and effect process known as karma vipaka, in which vipaka, or old karma, means the effect, the result of previous actions. And, for the most part, we get bound up with the results of our actions. He goes on to say that action, however, supports choice. That is, we can choose our actions. While cause and effect governs what happens with things like volcanoes, plants and planets, karma is that part of cause and effect that involves an intentional agent, like us. The teachings on karma therefore encourage a sense of responsibility, he writes, the responsibility to give attention to the many conscious and half-conscious choices we make in terms of what we do. What this means is that in the present moment we do have a choice as to how the future pans out, whether we will feel joyful and at ease with ourselves or anxious and depressed depends on our actions now. And similarly, through our actions now, we can be liberated from the past, present and future. That's what awakening to karma brings about. Then pointing out that karma means physical, verbal and mental actions, as Beth Roth did, 
He says, in agreement with Bethroth again, that the most influential part is the karma of our emotive responses. Mental or heart karma, he says, is the most powerful. He writes, Responses and the inclinations they are based upon govern the actions of body and speech and also engender results in the domain of emotions, attitudes and mind states. Similarly, we only do things physically or verbally because of convictions, assumptions, interpretations and attitudes. That is mind. By itself, the body does neither good nor evil. These ethical qualities are rooted in the mind that initiates the physical deed. It's the same with speech and thought. Language is neutral. It's the kindness or malice of the mind using the language and concepts that brings fortunate or unfortunate results. Considering karma in this light motivates us to clear the mind of ill will or greed because these lead to verbal and physical actions that leave an unpleasant tone. They engender harshness and grasping and demanding and later on worry, regret and doubt. On the other hand, actions and thoughts based on compassion give the mind clarity and warmth. Hence, the teachings on cause and effect, they remind us to check, investigate and purify the mind state associated with any action. As our actions bring conflict and harmony into the context within which we live, taking hold of karma allows us to have a positive effect on the world around us. Understanding karma then also offers us the significant realization that our own well-being is not separate from how we act towards others. He then spells out the immediate and long-term effects of an action. He writes, If I curse and abuse someone today, the effect of that is that they get hurt, and that means that they're probably going to be unpleasant towards me in the future. It's also likely that that action will have immediate effects in my own mind, agitation and remorse. Or it may be that I get accustomed to acting in that way, so I continue to act abusively, develop an insensitive mind and lose friends. So effects accrue both in terms of states of mind, offense and remorse, and also behavioral structures, a pattern or program of being loud-mouthed or self-centered. The really problematic stuff is the ongoing programs, formations, or in Buddhist language, sankara. These behavioral patterns become part of our identity, and because we don't see past our ingrained habits, these patterns and programs sustain the rolling on or samsara or cause and effect. Now from this you can see why Lama Tsongkhapa says our karmic knots are so hard to undo. The more we indulge our behavioral patterns, the stronger they get and the more difficult they are to resist. As Ajahn Sujito says, we are often unaware of these patterns and that we are acting them out, so continue strengthening them indefinitely. Then, if we do eventually become aware and want to change them, we find it extremely hard to do. But it's vital that we do, and that we know we can make a change. Ajahn Sujito points out that, and I quote, the Kamavipaka process forms feedback loops of mental feelings of stress or agitation or ease that we can contemplate and consider. Moreover, we can respond in different ways to the results of our actions, so each effect does not inevitably engender a corresponding cause. Here's the choice. I can pause, come out of the mind state of irritation or recklessness, give it due consideration and try to do better in the future. And that's the first step to liberation. 
Now, nobody is saying this is easy to do. Sometimes our habitual patterns are so strong that we find ourselves almost automatically acting them out, even before realizing that we are in what Ajahn Sujita calls the mind state of irritation or recklessness. So, he says, karma is actually most readily accessible in external behavior. He writes, The Buddha saw that clarity in regard to behavior offers a pragmatic way in which suffering and stress can be avoided and peace, trust and clarity generated. Hence, he spoke of dark karma, actions such as murder, theft, falsehood and sexual abuse that lead to bad results, and bright karma, actions such as kindness, generosity and honesty that do the reverse. He also referred to a mixture of bright and dark karma, actions which have some good intentions in them but are carried out unskillfully. An example of this would be having the aim to protect and care for one's family but carrying that out in a way which abuses one's neighbors. Karma is also dynamic, he writes. We act according to input, and as we receive the feedback of agreeable or disagreeable results, that moderates our further actions. But the problem is that some of that feedback happens a long while after the action, years or even lifetimes. So, he says, some aspects of the feedback loop are chaotic, Can you see how this again reflects Tsongkhapa's contention that the bonds of karma are extremely hard to unravel? As Ajahn Sujito states, the rate we learn at does not match the rate at which we create more action, and that leads to complex difficulties that become increasingly hard to solve. He uses the example of how we established industries and lifestyles dependent on unsustainable resources long before we realized how badly we had polluted the atmosphere. So now it's become very hard to make any real changes and we're facing many disasters. But a similar thing happens in our personal lives. We fall into patterns of behavior that become so entrenched that even though we may recognize how much they are the basis of our suffering, we struggle to change them. It's a problem psychotherapists are very familiar with. Recognizing the difference between our rate of learning and our rate of action is important. Ajahn Sujita writes, It encourages us to put effort into clarifying awareness for the mind and its impulses. We need to investigate our mind and mental programs more thoroughly and more often. Then it's possible to interrupt the feedback loop with input that arrests or moderates our impulses. This input is the karma that leads to the end of karma and it is the hinge point of the Buddha's teaching. In its deepest fulfillment, it can lead not to just changes in behavior, but complete liberation. That complete liberation, he goes on, means stepping out of the whole cause and effect process that we are caught up in right now. Being born is old karma that brings us back into what he calls, and I quote, the predicament of existing within the domain of cause and effect, with a potential to keep rolling in it. Having inherited the effect of being embodied, we are affected by food, health and the climate. And along with this comes the potential for defending, seeking nourishment and procreation. Mind is attuned to respond to all this instinctively with fight-freeze-flight drives that can kick in at a moment's notice. And with mind there come the awareness of aging, sickness and death. And with that, separation from the loved and being disagreeably affected by that and furthermore, being seemingly impotent to do anything about it. 
Thus the rolling on of samsara traps us in its spin. And there is something to think about for the next week. From now, our time is up. Thanks for joining the program today. I hope you'll do so again next week. As we go, please dedicate any positive potential from our time together today to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.